This is episode two in Organized Superstition. In this episode, I will continue to expand out from episode one. Many questions will arise throughout this series as the mind fights to regain control of itself and the false perceptions of reality start breaking down. Out of all the many formed individuals that might happen upon these talks, I can only do my best to bring this material down to a sensible state that can be received intact without damaging it to a point of inconsequential minutia. The information presented here cuts to the root of many things which are irrefutable proofs exposing truth. The structure of these talks will be set in a manner to advance thought, not as a list of data, so as to improve the vitality of the mind and not to sterilize it with lists of facts that have a shelf life. Facts are occasional and fleeting, can and will change on a whim, or just with the passing of time. What we experience today in these corrupted forms of governing, affecting our well-being, is a senile body of lawmakers taking occasional, fleeting facts and creating law with them, progressively supplanting truth. Later I will have a website to bring reference material back to the concepts I put forth, but regardless, by the end of this series, reference material will just be supplemental to what you will have gained. When I give the meaning of a word and its context, know that these come straight from the lexicons, dictionaries, encyclopedias, and thesauruses, and they all are cross-referenced among over 30 different of these through Latin, Ancient Greek, Hebrew, Coptic, Phoenician, and others, including published works on Sanskrit and Proto-Indo-European, along with synonyms, then the roots and stems extracted and compared with known root systems from each of those. From there, the word is evaluated to see whether or not it contains a preposition, prefixed or infixed, then any morphology of consonants and vowels looked at. And through this process, its case and number are looked at in the context it is used. Unfortunately, over 60% of these books of words are not in English and the most correct and useful ones are in that 60%. So for many, some of the reference material will not be apprehended. All of this together is the function of getting to the root, called the radical, in Latin, the radix, and is why my show is called Radicalis. Let's begin this episode with a story of a man dying on a cross twice. Mount Calvary, or Skull Mount. Let's look at Mark 15.22. And they took him to the place called Golgotha, which being interpreted is the place of a skull. Note that English Bibles translate the last part as, which means the place of the skull, but it is properly translated as, which being interpreted is the place of a skull. These differences are important between the word means and the word interpreted, as the connotation of interpreted in this context is directly referencing the act of auspex, or augury, that is conducting the duties of an oracle. I will show what this means later when talking about the mercy seat, but know that these sleights of hand are rampant in the English versions of the Christian fable to cover up the pagan roots. That last part being in the Latin, interpretatum calvariae locus. Golgotha, is from Aramaic Gugulta, which means the place of a skull. The Latin part, Calvariae Locus, meaning place of a skull. In the Greek being, Cranio Topos, 
meaning the same as the Latin and Aramaic. It is of the constellation Cadus, the skull of Cadus being called in star charts the skull nebula, this being the time when the sun appears over Cadus for less than 24 hours each year at the vernal equinox, perceived to be standing on the head of Cadus. Cadus, the sea monster, represented under various names in many fables such as Hercules and Perseus. Mount Calvary is the sun's vernal crossing, or crucifixion, that being spring, at the time of Easter. Recall in episode 1, Easter just being the compound of east and aster, meaning east star, that being the rising luminary sun. The next line in Mark's narration is 23. And they gave him to drink wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not accept. Is this a show of defiance, a strong will by the Savior to not accept this offer of wine mixed with myrrh to dull his pain? A one last show of strength? Let's take a look. Aside from myrrh being an ancient remedy, what is the point of narrator Mark adding this detail to the script? Along with the many analogies the word myrrh is used with, there is a star in the throat of the sea monster constellation Cadus called Myra, also pronounced Myra or Moira with the Latin oi diphthong. This word you know from episode 1 coming from the Virgin Mary story, whose Old Testament name being Miriam, but here I will give another addition to further some detail. Moira in the Latin and Greek means a part, a degree in the astronomical sense, and is also the name for one of the fates, the fates in ancient religion and mythology called Moirai, who are known to be three in number, with a third named Moira. Their names are Clotho, the spinner for the thread of life. Symbols are the distaff and spindle, in the Roman Nona, the ninth. Lachesis, the allotter, the drawer of lots, measuring the thread of life. Symbol is a measuring rod, in the Roman Decima, the tenth. Atropos, the unturning, the cutter of the thread. Symbol is the shears or sword, her other name being Moira, in the Roman Morta, the dead one. Why would I bother with listing out these fates, who seem immaterial to what is being put forth? Let us return back to whoever attempted their hand at writing this play, having Mark's words coming from the supposed eyewitness Peter. There will not be a need to read the whole passage from Mark 15, but I will read enough to get to the point of it. And they clothed him with purple, and put upon a crown woven of thorns. And they struck his head with a rod, and they did spit on him. And bowing their knees, they adored him. And after they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they took him to the place called Golgotha, which being interpreted is the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not accept. And crucifying him, they divided his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole earth until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of the standers by, hearing, said, Behold, he calleth Elias. 
this whole part being an exclamation to the sun, Helios. And one running and filling a sponge with vinegar and putting it upon a reed, gave him to drink, saying, Stay, let us see if Elias come take him down. And Jesus, having cried out with a loud voice, gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in two, from the top to the bottom. And there were also women looking on from afar, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph, and Salome. And Joseph, buying fine linen, and taking him down, wrapped him up in the fine linen, and laid him in the sepulchre, which was hewed out of a rock, and he rolled a stone to the door of the sepulchre. Before I get to what this all means, you will notice there is a mass repetition of the words and and him. This is a raw script, the rehearsal draft actors or performers would use before their performance in public. These gospels, literally, are just scripts for performers to follow, just like an actor today receives their script to practice with. Now when you look at the structure of these gospels, it will become apparent why they are marked the way they are. Okay, so who was this they who struck his head with a rod, who divided his clothing, casting lots, some of this clothing referred to as purple, which that color is used as the sign for royal, and no Roman governor would ever bring out one who was to be put to death, let alone a wandering gypsy wearing something as fine as purple to distinguish them as royalty. Or then after the crucifixion, darkness covering the whole earth until the ninth hour. They are the three women fates, the Mori, conducting the luminary sun's biography at its crossing, the vernal equinox, its crucifixion. Why the detail of casting lots for his clothing? As this being Easter for the Christian, Paschai for the Jew, this Passover is quite literally the lambing season for the northern hemisphere, and when Christians use the phrase, Lamb of God, as the sign. The lamb just being a young ram, Ram being Aries, the sign for the March spring. Lambing having to do with livestock, and in particular, the mercantile aspect of shearing the lamb to bring wool to market. And to expand this a bit, with its more colorful wording from John in Revelations 1.13 to 1.18, where here I will note that the apocryphal scripts were the study guides for initiation into the priestcraft. These were not read to the illiterate public. And furthermore, the priests were the only ones to have Bibles back then. The public did not have access to them, and even if they did, they were mainly written in Latin, Syriac, and Greek. Even when the English versions were created in the early times of the church, the priests held control over their distribution, and even then, the public was mostly illiterate. And it's good to keep in mind that across the Western world, the majority of the public outside of priests and royalty were illiterate, and this lasting all the way into the early 1900s of the current era. And with that, the public at large did not and does not know Latin or ancient Greek. So, Revelations 1.13-1.18 And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, that being the seven churches, one like to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. The word paps, or breasts, here is literally of the female sort. This is the introduction of Gnostic androgyny. And the hair on his head was like snow-white wool, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, 
and his feet like unto fine brass, as in a burning furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, these stars being the archangels that light the seven churches. And from his mouth came out a sharp two-edged sword, this sword being the sword of justice, that is, of life and death, that being of fortune or debt, light and dark, a dividing tool. And his face was as the sun shineth in his power. And when I had seen him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and alive, and was dead. And behold, I am living forever and ever, and have the keys of death and of hell. Hell here being the word inferni, meaning lower regions, the infernals, but its plural number is particularly used here for inhabitants of the lower world, the inferni, the shades, as it were. The seven churches that are called candlesticks, which are congregations, with the seven lights of the archangels, or angles of the ark, are Ephesus, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Pergamos, Sardis, Smyrna, and Laodicea. The word angel being angelus in the Latin, angelos in the Greek, and its meaning is messenger or envoy. It is not a word derived from any spiritual sense, the owl generally being the envoy or omen in early times. So what is the meaning of these churches? Let's start from one and go to seven. Ephesus meaning upon Hesus. The Galish name Hesus is the god of Mars, Mars being March, or Ares the ram. In Gaul mythology, victims were sacrificed to Hesus by being tied to a tree and flogged to death. Thyatira. Without veering too far off path, this word is signifying the brass plate affixed to the front of a plow angle before steel plows were used. This church representing the ox or bull of April, the time for plowing the fields. Philadelphia, being brotherly love known today, are the twins Gemini of May. Bergamos, being height and elevation, with fire being the attribute. This is June, when the sun reaches its highest level of the year, being in the crab of June. The name for June in Hebrew is Thomas, or Tammuz. This is the sun's zenith. Sardis, again, without going off path, this is the king god the lion in the Coptic, Elion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, or July, the Greek, Helios. Smyrna, literal meaning, is a bundle of myrrh. Reference Song of Solomon 113. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. This is August, and in reference to the Virgo Virgin Mary, who is most prominent in the months of August into September. Laodicea, that being Laos plus Dikaios, meaning people of social rule, that being law and justice. This is the church of lawyers in the scales constellation Libra, the end of the productive summer months in September. This is when judicial halls flood with merchants to settle disputes, and it is also when taxes for man's production are levied. Why wouldn't the Savior take the wine with myrrh when offered? The first allegory is, it could not be accepted because it was spring, where there is no wine, and myrrh sap does not run in spring. Myrrh being extracted around the end of August into September, wine being the end of September at the autumnal equinox. 
This is all being the last days for the vintage and when myrrh runs clear from the knots or the cuts of the bark giving the best quality. The second being that it was not time to meet with Moira, the Roman Morta, the star in the throat of Cadus. Moira meets up with the sun at the autumnal equinox on its descent, being the negative attribute, and not the vernal equinox at the ascent, being the positive attribute. The descent being when fortunes or debts are determined, the allegory meaning death. When prominent stars were named, no matter what time after around 600 BC to the 1900s AD, their names were derived in accordance with these fictions in fable. They are not new discoveries, but only introductions to previously used characters already known in ancient fables before the advent of complex star charts, and generally not privy to the public. Every country has the exact same script and blueprint. The only changes are the characters, set decoration, and the form of the government used, government just being modeled after the covenants of star clusters. The degree of separation between socialism, capitalism, communism, despotism, etc., are so minute to be imperceptible, and for all intents and purposes are the same. The only apparent change to the naked eye is the way they implement tribute, that being tax, and their decimal method for fractionating currency. The scribes using Cadus in this rendition is just an attempt to keep the old play fresh. A change of character here, move the location there, add some new paint to the stage, etc. It's just a change of facade, but the structure of the stage is the same. As pertaining to the word hour here used in this crossing, it is outside of the scope for this episode, but you can refer to the Horai, the goddesses of the seasons and natural time, where the three fates coincide with this group, as the Horai are structured in triad sections, and originally of ten hours, later to be twelve hours. That's why the three fates of the ancient Romans are Nona the ninth, Decima the tenth, then Morta the dead one. With the fortitude of understanding the Horai, you can gain quite a bit of understanding about the concept of time used today. With this, I will add the Romans Nonai. Nonai, called the Ninths, in this particular part of the play, the spring play, has to do with the Ides of March leading into April, the festivals and mercantile functions of spring. And to wind down Skull Mount, this color purple being the color for royalty, Harken back to episode 1 and the four royal stars used to conduct the four seasons at the solstices and equinoxes. This color purple, or scarlet, thrown in is to relay to priests that this section is about one of the four royal points in the cardinal cross. These seemingly innocuous additions are literally just notes for the priests so they can follow their lines of the play. There is more detail concerning violet colors but it's not needed at this time. I will close out Skull Mount with Revelations 13.8. And all that dwell upon the earth adored him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, which was slain from the beginning of the world. What was that? The book of life of the Lamb? Lamb with a capital L? If you made it from episode 1 to this point, it is a fact that you know more than any diploma-holding doctor of theology or priest. I do not speak hyperbolically. You have a far greater knowledge than any priest today, 
and that warrants a pause to internalize the state of affairs in the various schools of academia. In a little over an hour, you have attained knowledge and truth surpassing that of institutionalized schooling for the religious arts. Those doctors going on to hold professional positions for decades to help the spiritual well-being of others, never knowing the truth of what you have received in just one hour. Them, in those positions of authority bolstering false history and conscripting the ignorant and innocent into their organized superstitions. Let us move on to the wine press at Gethsemane. What is this English-rendered word of Gethsemane? It is a Hebrew compound of gath plus shmanin, gath meaning wine press, shmanin meaning oils, being the plural of shemen, where the English cognate is semen. As a note, I have seen many times by expert translators from academia seeming to mistake a Shemitic dialect's genitive form for a plural form. Genitive meaning of something, its gene. Plural meaning more than one. The apostrophe S in English being an example. It can mean more than one or of one. In either case here, it is immaterial. Gethsemane, literally meaning oils of the wine press or wine press for oils. Well, they gave up the game easy on this one. As you know by now, the vintage season is at the end of September, the autumnal equinox. And this is the sun's second crossing of the year, or the crucifixion. This time marked with the first martyr in the Abrahamic fairy tale who was presented as Saint Stephen, or Stephen. That name being Stephanos, the Greek word for crown, or that which encompasses. But this isn't just a generic crown. This is a seven-star point crown called the Corona Septentrionalis. The constellation that rises and sets with the scales of September, septum being seven in Latin, and this signifying the seventh month, that being the end of the golden days of spring and summer. As you recall from episode one, the beginning of the year in ancient times was reckoned from March at the vernal equinox, making this the month of September. This whole section of the fable is about winemaking before the arrest of the character Jesus and subsequent crucifixion. The arrest, as in the luminary sun's descent on the ecliptic path, crucifixion being the crucifixion of the autumnal equinox. So, there you have it, two crucifixions. The vernal equinox crucifixion and the autumnal equinox crucifixion. The two points when the sun crosses the equinoctial planes in a solar year, one on the ascent and one on the descent. This is the separation of light. On the ascent, the days grow longer. On the descent, the days grow shorter. If you want to see this represented in paintings, murals, or drawings, you can search online with the words Jesus in the wine press. This part of the fiction is the most fascinating, as it is the biggest mistake the scribes of the gospel forgeries made in their efforts to cover up the ancient pagan origins, showing that from the old to new, and everything in between has no originality, no history of its own, and no standing, wholly copied in total from ancient paganism many hundreds of centuries before the advent of Judaism or Christianity, then to claim a false origin. Have you begun to understand what the effect of this is today? Claims on heredity, kingships, lawgivers, the soul itself, 
claims on regional territory along with cities or holy lands, all based around a fiction. If it's not fully apparent yet, it will be in totality by the end of this series. Yes, Jess, Jesus, 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 Jao, Jack, Jah, Jehovah, Yahweh, Adonai, and all the other multitude of various renderings used for the position of the sun at a given time are the ancient Greeks, Yakus, the Roman, Bacchus, the Egyptian, Osiris, the pre-Islamic Arab, Mises, the Indian, Krishna and Vishnu, the Persian, Zoroaster, and on and on. But that will come in the next episode when the fabled character Moses is put to bed, and this thread tugged until it all unravels, taking all supposed rulers and kings of the Shemitic fairy tale expounding a great nation of Israel with it, including David, exposing the whole lot of this corruption set upon man. Here I am going to talk about the mercy seat. I am going to come at this topic of the mercy seat from an acute angle starting with the word Europe or Europa. This word still said by academia to be of uncertain origin. Those who listened to episode 1 might have an inclining for the first part, Euro. Yes, Euro is Eurus, or Euros, meaning a circular course, a compass coming from the Latin and Greek. What of the second part, Opa? Opa means the eye, from Aeolic Greek the round course of the eye, used in metaphor as the eye of heaven, meaning the sun, that which brings light, the sun being humanity's all-seeing eye. So now that it's no longer of lost origin, is there reference to this name? Yes, the word Yeropin, first recorded in Homeric Hymn 3 to Apollo, 520 B.C. or before. It is referred to both times when concerning oracles, that reference being to the word krestirion, the seat of an oracle, from Christus, meaning one who gives or expounds oracles, i.e. the seers, the oracle dealers. The second meaning is usurer, or creditor, and the stem rendered in the English by losing the Greek termination is the title Christ, semi-erroneously said to be from the Greek krestos, meaning good useful, deserving. But as the game is given away with the retention of the English pronunciation of the I in Christ from Christus and not the E in Christos, it is clear the origin is of the oracle sense, not the good man sense. The difference being of pronouncing the name Christ, Chris, or Christmas. Furthermore, it's obvious when reading the fables of Christ that it is precisely about the dealings of oracles. Both of these words given to hundreds of men throughout time long before the Abrahamic superstitions, one to claim someone as good, the other as an oracle, usurer, or creditor. Another word within this family being kresmos, described in Latin as oraculorum, meaning announcements or responses of the oracles. An example of Christos in use from Euripides, Ucodides, Lucias, Demosthenes, and others, it is used to denote a useful citizen to the state, having nothing to do with a religion. When the title of Christ was given to kings or governors, such as Cyrus, it denoted them as the creditor. 
Between these two words, academics have twisted themselves into knots to distinguish one from the other, missing what is apparent. Plainly, one is the omen, the other being one interpreting the omen. They just have to look at the Greek letter eta, used between Christes, Christos, and Chresmos, then confer with the Latin lexicons, which are by far the best out of all ancient language lexicons for giving clear and concise meanings. Okay, so let's get to the mercy seat. You might find it interesting that the Chrestirion, the seat of an oracle, from a poetical rendering more than five centuries before the Christian's Christ, is cognate with the term mercy seat for the Ark of the Covenant, called the Elastirion, both terms used for offerings to the oracle, that being the priest, to receive mercy, both governed by the luminary sun's course in the heavens, both used for divination, that word literally meaning divisioning, i.e. the casting of lots, the drawing of lots, in astrology meaning degrees in the zodiacal circle connected with planets used to draw horoscopes, their nativities, later used by priests and kings to draw lots for the kingdom's subjects to farm. Their allotment of land to grow food and raise livestock, all dependent on their standing with the state. The mercy seat is nothing but a political function of the state, originally used through the priest class, now a judiciary function. The way it used to work is these priests performed the function of an oracle for the seasons, and then determined the labors of man through casting lots, that is, assigning acreage based on what they saw for the coming seasons, and apportioning these based on the size of tribute each individual was willing to give to the Holy See. These tributes today now being compulsory through law in the function of taxation. This whole system being usury and debt-based, a compulsory sacrifice to the Holy See, or state. These structures become apparent when the superstition and fantastical delusions are removed. When one realizes there is no son of God named Jesus, there was no Noah, Moses, Adam or Eve, archangels, cherubim, sea monsters, care bears, or my little ponies. There was no parting of the Red Sea, or a talking snake in a garden having four rivers and a magic tree producing magic apples, along with the other countless magical imaginings. Remove these and things become clearer. As it is the truth that none of these are real, it comes to this point. There was no fall of man. And right there, that very point, the point of which creates inherent sin from birth till death, damning all people of all nations unless one seeks out this false savior of man, asking him to remove the fake sins or risk being sent to the fiction of a fiery hell for all eternity. That very point, the vicar's being more than happy to be the go-between for your transaction to escape this torment and gain passage into heaven. This is where the whole scheme to manipulate populations into a mass system of governing run by such unremarkable people assigning themselves as the chosen authorities comes crashing down. These people, so unremarkable, they have to reign at the end of a bloody sword with threat of violence, just mere humans with nothing special about them posing as royalty. Understand this, and we can move past these feeble people who think themselves chosen, using nothing but violence as their guide, showing their true colors at every turn that they are the lessers of man. To wind this episode down, let's change it up and go off topic to look at a simple current events example and run it as an exercise in hearing and proper cognitive function. 
For the past month or so, a doctor has been passed around the news cycle, a doctor that gave testimony in the U.S. Senate, this doctor being Peter McCullough, MD, MPH, with a list of self-aggrandizing accolades that makes vanity itself blush, some of these being internationally recognized authority, 1,000 publications, 500 citations in the National Library of Medicine, Professor of Medicine, Vice Chief of Internal Medicine, Advisor to Drug Sponsors and the FDA, so on and so forth. Through this doctor's circuit of televised appearances, his main theme is that the fast-tracked mRNA gene-affecting vaccine is dangerous and has been released without enough testing, and this making it a great potential for harm, which all of these points are undeniably correct and sound. These various appearances of the good doctor going viral among the multitude as their eagerness for validation within their various groups has no restraint. Like a coked-up infant chasing fireflies, they run headlong into the field with no sense of direction, just getting lost in the tall grass. Okay, so getting to the point. The point is that this doctor, looking to be in his 60s, no doubt practicing medicine for over 30 years, and no one seemed to hear what they were listening to, or didn't want to hear it without their own bias. In a 20-minute interview, the good doctor says that there is so little known about the vaccine that they were only studied for two months and that we have no idea if the patients are protected, then goes on to giving statistics from that trial stating that the rate of contracting COVID-19 was less than 1%, whether subjects were given a vaccine or a placebo. Ensuring he covers his positions, goes on to say he's very favorable to vaccines and gives a shout-out to the more than 70 vaccines on the market today. And at the culmination, says he gave 70% of his patients this mRNA gene-affecting vaccine, stating that, quote, initially, based on the initial studies, I was encouraging the vaccine, but based on the totality of the data at this time, I can no longer recommend it, end quote. Did you catch the root of the blatant disregard for health from this medical doctor? This renowned doctor gave 70% of his patients a vaccine based on two-month trial, stating his reasoning was that the initial studies were encouraging. Studies from a two-month trial on an experimental gene-targeting vaccine that was fast-tracked, where this good doctor states repeatedly that it is dangerous and can even kill. Well, the studies look good at the time, is his excuse. And no one seemed to bother with hearing that part. That part is the most important part out of all of the words the good doctor spoke on his circuit. Who but a full-blown idiot would even consider a two-month trial of an experimental drug as a qualifying factor for treatment when evaluating the health of a patient, only to now backtrack with a whoopsie, saying he read some more stuff now and decided it's dangerous, but only after giving 70% of his patients this thing, throwing all blame of this catastrophic error onto government not once taking any responsibility for his clear ineptness. With the most basic function of logic, even simple jack from Tropic Thunder could muster. Would you allow an architect to put up a building without knowledge of material dynamics, moment of inertia, static and dynamic loading, and all the rest that goes into constructing it, a building that will house people and their families? The idiocracy-laden intellect of this doctor cannot be covered up with nonsensical strings of medical nomenclature to dazzle the public, while using a tone of sincerity to lull them to sleep, when you understand how to cut through the BS and get to the root of it. Mind you, 
This is not the ultimate root cause of ills when it concerns this major scripted event of pandemonium designed to bring in a new system of governing, but it is a major one. The absolute ignorance from the good doctor still present after intensive schooling and decades in his field, him being a trusted national authority for the health and well-being of others, to make these kinds of mistakes after all of that is beyond unacceptable. But it seems this cause and effect was lost on the majority while deifying this white lab coat, exposing how low the bar is set by the multitude for people in such positions of authority. Being the subject in Milgram's experiment cannot happen with an informed, capable mind, even if the white lab coat authority tries to conscript you into it. If you're not familiar with the 1963 Stanley Milgram experiment in obedience to authority based around the white lab coat, it's worth looking into. The cause and effect is that there are tens of thousands of these polished, trained monkeys coming off the assembly line of academia who are given positions of high esteem with a nicely framed piece of paper accompanied by a list of self-aggrandizing accolades. But when the decoration is cut away, the Vanity Fair facade pulled down, what is left are just a bunch of circle-jerking morons fluffing their sacred fraternities, writing law for man, becoming doctors of health, doctors of theology, scientists, professors, governors, and minions for various state institutions. Many of them, unaware, they are just flunkies for a system their tiny minds could never comprehend. And to expand this into the profession of spiritual advisors, does your priest know Latin, ancient Greek, or a Shemitic dialect? If not, why do you deem them qualified to be the go-between for your spiritual health and salvation when through their many years of study at institutions designed around the subject of salvation and how to keep the soul from burning in hell for all eternity, they haven't the ability to even read one of the so-called original scripts? If they can, why have they not told you what I have? It can't be missed if they knew even one of these languages at an elementary level because the English versions are so far removed from even the corrupted so-called originals, they don't track in the slightest degree. Truly, they are not given the basic lexicons that show what the words in these origin languages mean, because I can say with the utmost certainty that what is written in the English renditions of ancient paganism now called the gospel is not what the originals say, regardless of the truth that all of these being fictions in the first place. The degree of separation between a chosen religion, atheism, nihilism, satanism, liberalism, conservatism, or any of the other isms out there is so minute you can push one with a breath and it turns into another. The reason being is that they are all cults and organized superstitions, all pulling to the same center, just from different degrees of angle. I will leave you with this from one of the first fathers of the Latin Church 1,850 years ago, Sanctus Erenaeus, 1st century AD, speaking on the four Gospels. It is impossible that there could be more or less than four, for there are four climates and four cardinal winds, but the Gospel is the pillar and foundation of the Church and its breath of life. The Church, therefore, was to have four pillars, blowing immortality from every quarter and giving life to men. Music by White Bat Audio. Check him out at whitebataudio.com.